0: You're listening to Radio Illumini, raising the vibration to heal the nation. cut-off year of 1983 on this show for the music we play, and although these dates are inevitably arbitrary, there is some logic to this one because much of the 80s beyond 1983 belonged indisputably to high energy and so the year 1983 marks a major major change of direction in dance music. I'll be honest, I'm somewhat ambivalent about high energy as a music genre. Whereas disco was a fairly broad church and was able to include elements of many other styles, the sound of high energy always seemed much more narrowly defined, and I think it's this that, to me, made it less interesting as a consequence. High energy didn't just happen all at once, of course. A hybrid form of it crept into disco from the mid-1970s onwards, initially without a name, and it was just seen as a natural offshoot of the increasingly electronic sound being used in disco. It was only around 1982 that a really definable high energy sound emerged, heavily influenced by the work of a handful of key producers and artists such as Bobby Orlando, Lime and Ian Levine. After the disco backlash in the second half of 1979, disco at that time had mostly lost its mainstream presence and although some good stuff was still being made for the clubs, it was definitely a genre with a question mark over its head and there was a sense that people were ready for something new. Gay men in particular were ready for something new. Now the visibility and acceptability of gay men had increased massively uh, by the start of the 1980s to the degree that a gay male couple were featured as major supporting characters in the mainstream British TV sitcom Agony, which aired between 1979 and 81. It's worth checking this series out if you're not familiar with it, as, in retrospect, it's surprising how open it is about the gay couple's relationship. I think there's a popular misconception that there was no positive portrayal of gay characters in mainstream media this early on, but there was, and this was not the only instance. These early gains in acceptance, however, were quickly set back to zero by the emergence of the AIDS epidemic for which gay men were largely blamed by the mainstream media and by around 1983 gay men were viewed once again as outsiders. They felt slightly under siege and as such the fast emerging commercial gay scene turned into a sort of safe space for gay men with many clubs and bars effectively becoming gay men only spaces. In this atmosphere, it was probably but a small step from having venues that were gay men only, to those same venues all playing the same music, and that music was, you guessed it, high energy. That's not to say that high energy wasn't popular in straight venues too, it was, but many gay venues took it a step further and had a specific high energy only music policy, which I don't think was ever done on the straight scene. How popular high energy really was with the average gay man in those days is hard to gauge, as effectively the venues had a captive market. As well as offering a safe space away from the perceived hostility of the outside world, Bars and clubs were about the only way of meeting others in those far-off pre-internet days, so it's fair to say that the average punter took what was given and liked it, knowing there was no alternative other than sitting at home, bored and lonely. One of my big reservations about high energy, apart from the sameness of the sound which I mentioned earlier, was that frankly a lot of it wasn't that good. I suspect what happened was that the massive demand from high energy only venues was only able to be satisfied by churning out music on a sort of production line. And as such, a lot of high energy later in the 80s became repetitive and formulaic and probably didn't attract the best talent as there could hardly have been much money in it. In a sense, I've always felt the genre was rescued a little later on in the 80s by the production team of Stock Aitken and Waterman, who brought high energy back into the mainstream, made stars out of some of their artists and injected a much needed feel good factor back into the music. Then towards the end of the 80s, even some gay venues started abandoning their high energy only music policies as younger customers became more focused on newer types of dance music, such as acid house, techno, etc. And this trend continued with high energy finally disappearing uh, around the middle of the 1990s venues started to become more mixed and the AIDS epidemic started to recede from public and media consciousness. Suddenly, the siege atmosphere of the 80s was over for gay men, taking high energy with it. Of course, this is not a definitive view of high energy. There are lots of different opinions about it and I'm sure there will be many who disagree with some of my points. My only qualification, really, is that I did live through that time and this is how it appears to me in retrospect. I don't really miss the high energy era or even the music that much Um, as for me it was so linked with fear surrounding AIDS and the febrile atmosphere the media and government managed to build up around that echoes perhaps of current times but of course that would be a whole other show Yeah. This is Radio Illuminate. You're listening to the Martin V Classic Disco and Dance Show, and today we are talking about high energy. And to get the discussion going, I am delighted to welcome regular guest and popular media commentator Jack Slaymaker. How are you
1: doing, Jack? I'm very good, thank you, Martin. Uh, I, I'm glad that I'm now just a regular guest, just one of the just part of the furniture now
0: part of the furniture and you, you know uh, what, what, what better place really to have you in um, so I, I mean I remember when I first mentioned we'd be doing a, a show about high energy you, you said you didn't really know much about it and weren't even sure what constituted high energy um, and I think maybe that is uh, not an uncommon position with anybody under about 50 these days so um Consequently, I I am very uh, curious to hear what you have to say about it. So, um, what were were your sort of general impressions of the music, having listened to the seven tracks we've just featured?
1: To be honest, it it was quite an up and down thing. Um, To start with, some of the tracks I really, really loved. I think um, one in particular, Malibu, Born to Dance, may be one of my new favourite songs. It is so... Intense, but I I really like it, and it still has that kind of almost underpinning of funk that disco had. Um, I just think I I really enjoyed that particular track, but there are others which I didn't particularly care for. And I think from my general, a general kind of experience with high energy, having kind of gone down a bit of a rabbit hole, is that I guess, like with all music genres, it varies wildly, but. There, there's so much of it which I just don't actually really care for. And then there's there, There's a huge swathe of it, which I really, really do. So, you know, I, I guess it's like most genres, isn't it? You, are, you like some things, you don't like others. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, that's true. I, I always felt, as I said in my very serious sort of Radio 4-style <laughs> exposition, that, that, that High Energy was rather more narrowly framed in, in terms of the sound. But having said that there was still as you say a lot of variation within those boundaries Yeah. Um, I mean what I tried to do with the seven tracks we've listened to today the first three um, and I think uh, let's just have a quick track rundown shall we so we've got um, the first track was Malibu uh, Born to Dance from 1980 the second one was New Paradise Get the Look from 1981 and the third one was Angela Dean uh, World X from 1979 so that was the first group of three and in my mind they were what I would call kind of hybrid tracks yeah Um, they they were very much kind of disco oblique high energy so that they belonged to that period where it wasn't really quite one thing or the other and then the last four were actually all from 1983 and i felt i don't know if you would agree with me but you can hear a very big difference i think between the first group of three the hybrid tracks and then the group of four and i because i think what had happened was by 1983 a really distinct high energy sound had kind of set in and you know there was a, a, a sort of tacit agreement that this is what high energy
1: is now i i agree and to be honest it, it's quite funny because the the three tracks which i enjoyed the most um were the first three tracks mm. with with that disco hybrid because again as, as we've discovered time and time again on this show anything with a strong funk kind of undertone or that reference to that the early disco sound it will always go down well with me and as you said there are still echoes of that um with it with all three of those tracks so so yeah Yeah,
0: I I mean, you know, I don't really know very much about any of the artists or or actually any of the three first tracks. Um, I don't know how popular they were, but it's interesting that, you know, particularly with the Angela Dean track, you're going back to 1979. And I think it is true to say that High Energy was sort of bubbling under right from, probably from the advent of... Donna Summers' I Feel Love and Onwards. I mean, you could even argue it further back than that. But it was one of those things that initially didn't really have a name. It it was just sort of a sound that kind of developed on the back of the increasing use of electronic technology and and sounds in mainstream disco. So, you know, it, it sort of started very gradually. I mean out of those three initial tracks was, was Malibu your favourite
1: one? Oh yeah by by a long stretch um, well <laughs> I, I really did like Angela Dean World X although I, I think it was um, I, I think some of the lyrics in there are quite quite cool and I, I think kind of spoke to that kind of disco and high energy thing I think um, there's a bit where it i think it's something like love me love me today for tomorrow the world will be slipping away or something like that something like that and i thought well i like that a lot because again when you're on a dance floor you know in a in a disco that may be exactly how you're feeling at the time and i thought that was quite cool but um I didn't really like New Paradise. I did like the fact that you could still hear the echoes of disco in it. I I remember when I was researching, I watched, I'm assuming it was the top of the Pox rendition on YouTube. And they kind of looked like three embarrassing aunts just pointing off to the side going, get the look and it was it was not ideal we'll put it that way it was it was it was um, an experience
0: yeah but, I, I mean you know as as with most of these kinds of groups I don't think they were really ever designed to do live performance no <laughs> no <laughs> to, but, to put it kindly I, I think I remember reading with New Paradise They it was basically a French project but yeah. the the ladies that were
1: fronting the band in, in quite quotes uh were mm. inf- infinitely variable yeah um to be honest well again you're not you're not really going to notice are because they? they they weren't i think the thing that comes across with a lot of certainly early high energy it wasn't breeding stars was it it was a Definitely lot of not. music being churned out to fulfill a need that was met as you mentioned in your intro to do you know largely to do with the music in in gay clubs and things like that in the 80s you know they they weren't making personalities so it didn't matter really who you had performing it because they were never really going to perform a high energy track live because why would they?
0: Very 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 seldom indeed. I I mean I suppose you know uh, thinking about it I I think in my exposition I say there couldn't have been much money in it for most of the artists and I'm, I'm sure that is true but I suppose on the other hand it must have been a very good opportunity for singers who were just beginning in their career because I mean obviously at the start of your career you're not going to expect to make that much money and and, you know suddenly you've got this genre of music for which there was a massive demand that I I would have thought perhaps as a, a, a new singer it might have been relatively easy to get into.
1: Yeah for sure.
0: I, I think that's probably the case and um I mean, who knows really but you know i'm thinking of for, for example going on to the last four tracks you know particularly uh the very last one um vicky benson uh <laughs> who i who i believe was well a, a teenager when she recorded it i think i think mm-hmm. she might have been about 17 or 18 so obviously just um beginning her career uh, I'm, i mean sadly i i believe that was pretty much all her career ever ever consisted of but you know who knows she might have gone on on to other other more successful avenues afterwards but i guess it was for somebody like her it was quite an easy way to get into the music business
1: well it, it certainly looks appealing doesn't it as you said i mean i'm not entirely sure how many of those artists actually amounted to anything other than that but I mean, I guess, uh, much like high, uh, high energy doesn't really require you to be a particularly good singer. Let's face it, it just it just doesn't, because it's mostly a lot of synth and a lot of manipulation of both vocals and, and kind of traditional background. Yeah.
0: You're quite right, you know, you, you, you don't need great technical ability. And the other thing that I think is, is very noticeable, particularly by the last four tracks from 1983, I think they're almost entirely technology and synthesizer driven uh-huh. I, yeah. I don't think there are any natural instruments apparent on them at all
1: it i guess it kind of um started that segue into that 80s synth pop, didn't it, which I uh, which I guess was a stock Aitken and waterman kind of driven thing yeah. when they started to bring high energy into a bit more of the mainstream. Um, I,
0: I mean I suppose it you know it was a time when there were you know the late 70s i suppose ushered in a whole lot of new technology relating to music. Or sometimes not new technology but just improvements in what was already there because I mean you had very electronic sounds being put out in the mid-70s by by the likes of Giorgio Moroder, for For example, but by all accounts, Uh, it was not particularly user-friendly. So you had to be quite an artist in the talent of manipulating the electronics to get a decent sound out of it, as he did. So, you know, it wasn't user-friendly and not particularly accessible. Uh, But I think that's what improved towards the end of the 70s. It almost, I won't say it got to the stage that we're at now where you can produce a track in your bedroom but um, it was perhaps moving more towards that. Just to quickly go through the last four tracks, we've got the first one, Simone, It's Too Late. Now, that was slightly unusual, in a sense, because it was a cover version of Carole King's It's Too Late. I don't know if you had ever heard the carol king song before i
1: did um i did i did uh when i was having a little look through them i, I if if it's a cover i always try and go back and listen to the original yeah. if, I've, if i'm not entirely sure of it
0: i mean a slightly unexpected uh song to
1: turn into high energy perhaps <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it certainly wouldn't have been what i would naturally have said you know what this lends itself really well to highly synthesized music yeah, but, um, I guess I guess it worked okay. I'm absolutely with you. I'm like, oh my
0: god, you you, you do not make a high energy track out of a Carol King song. <laughs> I'm sorry, but actually, <laughs> within its own frame of reference, I think it worked okay. I yeah. mean, um. Simone actually has quite a good voice, doesn't she?
1: Yeah, I'm I, certainly one of the better ones out of the high energy. Wow. There's a touch of Alison Moyet about her. I I always felt. That, I could see that. I could see that. It's not it's not an immediate reference that came to mind. But now you're saying it, I could definitely see it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, she—that wasn't the only thing she did. I think she did one album and maybe about three or four singles. Not a bad cover version. I think she was from Sheffield, but uh, I I could be completely wrong on that. (laughs) She could have—she could have just as easily been from
1: Stuttgart. She was from somewhere. <laughs> she, she was from, from <laughs> we're, Well, we're all, we're from, all somewhere, from somewhere, Oh, yeah. there you go.
0: Thanks. Um, and then we've got uh, Pamela Stanley coming out of hiding. <laughs> which Is a name that always makes me laugh because it always makes me think you know someone work, working in accounts or, or HR. You know, Damn. yeah, that's that's Pamela over there in the corner. You know. <laughs> I think that was a Canadian track. Any thoughts on that? Because we did play it uh, when we got together one. One comment you made was you said a lot of these tracks weren't as you thought High Energy would sound.
1: No, I think the, the, the main introduction that I'd had to High Energy was the first time you sent me this playlist and said, look, listen to this this is what we're going to do. I mean, obviously, you'd mentioned the fact that we're going to do a high energy thing, and I have heard you uh, mention high energy before, but I thought it was going to be much more erratic, kind of almost no vocals. That was my initial impression from everything that I'd kind of gauged about high energy. So... Yeah, it, it, it wasn't what I was expecting sort of as a genre or with um, with Pamela Stanley from Accounts. Um, <laughs> it wasn't. Again, that, that was kind of one of those tracks where I was like, okay, it is actually challenging my perception of high energy quite a lot, because I think I, I just had an incredibly laser narrow view of what I thought high energy was going to look like. And it, it wasn't quite that way.
0: In, in fact, I would say the vocals are quite a feature of high energy. Not, they certainly can be. They can. I mean, not necessarily as... Brilliant vocals, but more as sort of part of the the general concept. Female vocalists were very much to the fore with high energy, you know, and they normally had certain kind of names and a certain kind of look, and there was often a certain kind of title to the song as well. I mean, that is. The song title thing is not really evident in any of the ones we're looking at here, but of course I uh, have kept our sort of 1983 outer limits. I haven't gone further into the 80s, but as you did get further into the 80s and High Energy developed a bit more, you've got a lot of songs with sort of slightly suggestive titles.
1: I think this is kind of where the gay history element comes in as well. Because I have to say, as I've gotten older, I've become so much more interested in kind of the the gay cultural history and stuff um, from, from the ground up. And it's almost shaming in a way to not have really ever heard of high energy, but then researching it, realizing how much it played into that kind of pushing those those cultural things which we will take for granted now into the forefront i am a, a huge divine fan i've always been a huge divine fan I've, I've got an lp of um of well i've got a couple of uh, divine lps and i know it's not everybody's cup of tea but it just makes me think of it with the suggestive titles because obviously you've got things like shoot your shot which was yes. 1983 so i'm not breaking you out to limits um, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll
0: come on to talk about all, all this stuff, which, which I think is absolutely very interesting and, and valuable stuff. And I sort of touched on it in, in my exposition, but yeah. I, think, I think we can take it a lot further, actually. Let's just carry on going through the, right, I the playlist. It's okay. You know what we've I mean? Only got, we've only got two more, two so more tracks distracted. to talk about. Um, so... That was Pamela Stanley. I, I think you also said there was a little bit of a rock disco vibe to to her track.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I think you—I mean—you normally say you like rock disco. So if it's got funk or rock underpinning the track, then I'm usually happy.
0: Oh, okay. So that even survived the Pamela Stanley treatment. it is You yeah. still like it?
1: Yeah. So- Again, I didn't love it as much as the first three tracks. I didn't like any of the last four tracks as much as so I like the first three. As, as a general rule but I did still like it I thought it was okay I could listen to that
0: and I uh, you also commented I, I remember that you they reminded you of something that might have been played on the soundtrack to a bit of a sort of cheaply made straight
1: to video early 80s oh, the, film. yeah yeah, see, you remember things I say more than I do. Um, uh, <laughs> but, no, to be fair, I mean, I, I found a lot of that with High Energy. Like, even going back to the first track we talked about, I think it was the first one, World X by Angela Dean, like, and, and Malibu, Born to Dance, and, again, some of the later ones, like... They all sound like they could just be part of some really intense, trashy, straight-to-video horror sci-fi film, or you know, like the old um, Return of the Living Dead and reanimator and stuff like that. It's, it's just the sort of thing you can imagine. I'm a huge horror and sci-fi fan, especially really trashy, like campy 80s stuff. So again, I think that endeared me to high energy.
0: Now we've got the second-to-last Shannon, uh, Let Let the Music Play. Now this was, um, again, a little bit of an exception uh, with High Energy because Let the Music Play was actually... also a massive mainstream hit. Um, I, I don't know what chart position it got to, but it did pretty well. I think it was the first time uh, we'd heard of Shannon really. And uh, in my uh, in my previous comments, you know, I, I had said that High Energy was also very popular on the straight scene, which it absolutely was. And I have very vivid memories of Let the Music Play. Flaring out of um, and anyone who remembers London in the early 80s might even remember this place. It was some kind of... I don't think it was actually a nightclub. I think it was more like a sort of late-night bar, uh, uh, quite a notorious one, um, on the corner of Bethnal Green Road and Cambridge Heath Road. And I remember this blaring out of that place. <laughs> and, you know, it's all ears. I mean, you know, I would... Uh, I think I think I'd usually been visiting some friends who lived nearby and I was normally waiting for a bus to go home on the other side of the road and you're still <laughs> absolutely deafened by this. Uh, so did, did you did you have any, any sort of thoughts about the Shannon track? I mean it was fine. Yeah, it just didn't really, uh, you know, didn't hit do any much for and... you in any direction. I mean, no. I have heard it said that the Shannon track was a little bit of a prototype techno track, as well as being a high energy track. I,
1: I felt like with the Shannon
0: song, it was trying to do too much. I mean, there's a lot going on in the track, mm. isn't there? Uh, yeah. and, I, and I suppose when you have a lot going on that there's a danger in you know instead of doing one thing well you're doing loads of things perhaps a little less well yeah I don't know maybe it's that and then we've got the uh, aforementioned Vicky
1: Gibson from
0: Essex with easy (laughs) love
1: Uh, (laughs) I just love the names of all of these artists you've got Shannon Vicky Gibson it just sounds like girls you went to school with who you know wore their hair in a a like pigtails or like a tight Ponytail or something—I don't know. It's just—it's just a funny set of names. Um,
0: and these names just <laughs> proliferated. And, you know, I remember at the time it almost became a, became a little bit of an in-joke. You know, we we would almost sort of invent ever more ridiculous, commonplace women's names you know, <laughs> as, as potential high-energy singers. Um, I mean, it actually. I really like Vicky Gibson's track. I I just think some of the harmonic progressions are a little bit unexpected. There's a sort of interesting play around between major and minor at various points.
1: Again, although although it wasn't a track I particularly loved, I felt like there there were a lot of elements to it which worked very well. And I think there was a lot of variation that actually worked quite well. It was quite
0: an inventive track, I think, but without perhaps falling into the trap of the Shannon track, where where you felt there was just too much
1: going on. I was about to say that. I I feel like they experimented enough to give, give something that was probably quite a fresh sound at the time, but it didn't feel like they were just trying to cram something new in there for the sake of it. It felt like it was actually curated, as opposed to kind of mashed together.
0: Yeah, I mean it was quite, uh, yeah, quite carefully put together. I thought about that track. Yeah. I mean, I think you said you weren't a massive fan of her her vocals. No, not really? at all. A little bit on the high side. I mean, a you little know, I bit. Guess, I guess that
1: is just her. Dogs um, howling everywhere. Um, <laughs> it's, it's again, it wasn't a track that I particularly loved, but I could appreciate what it was doing and and the fact that i actually felt like it was a well put together track even if it's not something that i i would want to listen to ever again
0: thank you very much jack that was great um you've been listening to martin b classic disco and dance show on radio illumina and uh, i'm going to say goodbye until next time